Good afternoon. Welcome to Book Sandwiched In. I am Bonnie Narr. I'm a member of the Friends of the Knox County Public Library. We are honored today to welcome the library's very own Mary Palm Claiborne as our speaker. Mary Palm is Community Relations Director of the Knox County Public Library. Welcome, Mary Palm. I think this is the friendliest crowd I'll ever talk in front of. I've got a lot of friends here. Um, I think all of y'all know, or most of you know, that I am not a nutritionist or a health industry insider, but I've got friends from the health department who have serious knowledge on nutrition, and so y'all need to speak up and, you know, ask questions anytime, and they can answer them. I just want to give a shout-out to Emily. Emily's been doing the series Book Sandwich Gym for several years now, and it's been a great book discussion for current topics. And when she asked me to do it, I'm like, I, you know, I don't have any current topics that I'm really smart enough to talk about. But then it occurred to me that I have struggled with weight my whole life, and, well, I can, I can talk about that subject I was a veteran of two Weight Watchers camps by the time I was in sixth grade, and I've probably gained and lost as much as 60 pounds 100 times. So I figured that makes me an expert on obesity. And I have been interested in food policy and how it impacts us. So this book was a perfect fit for me. But it deals with a lot of science, so I hope the health department folks will talk about that some. I do know not dieting. I know, you know eat this, not that, non-dieting lifestyle. I know um, small changes are better. You know, there's all the philosophies out there. And there are so many answers to the question of obesity out there that, you know, but the sad thing is they're all wrong, pretty much all wrong. The really sad truth is that one in six adults who lose weight will keep it off. Only one in six. So it's, it's a scary thing for this childhood obesity epidemic because the stats just don't support success and weight loss once you've gained the weight. It's really scary. So it is a whole lot easier, I think we all know, to lose weight than to keep it off. With 50% of our children overweight, you know, what we really need to be doing is preventing it. But the odds are against us, and that's really what salt, sugar, and fat is about. This book pulls the curtains back on the food industry, and it really shows the tricks they use to hook us into sugar, salt, and fat. But they're not alone. Federal government is a really good partner to the processed food industry. And guess who else is a really great partner? Wall Street. Those are some pretty powerful folks out there. They're really... You know, best intentions maybe, but they're all ganging up on us. And this um, book really goes into how the processed food industry got to where we got. And um, i got to say, Mr. Moss did a fabulous job, and it's kind of a scary job. But let's just look at where we were and where we are. Obesity rates and overweight rates stayed the same pretty steady up until the 80s. Watch this map. This map is a uh, map from the CDC, and it um, talks about obesity rates starting in 85. You can see that a few states were under 10% were obese. A few more were under 14% obese. Watch this. 86, 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, 
We've added a new category under 19%, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, new category, over 20%, 98, 99. New category, 2002. So this is it, 1990, 2000, 2010. We've gotten fat, and it's been since the 80s. So what happened in the 80s? What on earth? I mean, if you think about it, Pillsbury, Kraft, General Mills, you know, they've been making food for the American diet since the early 1900s. Something happened. But we'll get to that. I'll tell you a little bit about the author before I get into the book. Michael Moss is the guy who really exposed the pink slime. Do you all remember pink slime? Big food industry debacle not very long ago. It's basically the beef industry's effort to create lean beef. What they did was they took all this beef, they were really trying to get the lean down in the beef, and they centrifuged all the fat out, and then they, um, well, they soaked it in ammonia. And it became pinker and all kinds of things. The USDA preferred to call it lean, finely textured beef. Well, they sold it to, you know, government agencies like prisons, He also won a Pulitzer in 2009 for writing an article called The Burger That Shattered Her Life. There was a young woman, she was 22 years old, a dancer, healthy as any good 22-year-old dancer is. She goes home to mom, eats a burger, now she's paralyzed. She had E. coli in the most extreme manner. So he got into this story, won a Pulitzer for explanational journalism on it, and found that the, you know, shockingly enough, The meat industry was really secretive. It was really hard to dig in and get to the the real story behind how E. coli got into the food system. So I think that's what set him down this path. He's a writer for the New York Times. He's written for Wall Street Journal and um, Atlanta Constitution and a few others. This is a very good book, and what I'm going to talk about today is just the tip of the iceberg. It's such a compelling read. What's also fun about this book is you're really home with your favorite brands. You know, the feel-good of Oscar Mayer Reader. I mean, I love Oscar Mayer Wiener. I love that song. I will sing it day in and day out if I can sing that song. But Pop-Tarts and Tang, and it's, it's kind of the warm and fuzzies of our childhood or my childhood. So, you know, those are the guys. You don't want to make them evil. And I don't think they are evil. I think they... They're, they're really kind of a victim of their own success. And mind you, they're self-interested. So, you know, does that make evil? I don't know. But we're, we're really fat now because of that. In terms of salt, sugar, and fat, you know, each of them has kind of been the bad boy. Right now, sugar is the big bad boy on the block. You know, everybody's pointing and says, it's all sugar's fault. You know, a few years ago, it was all fat's fault. You know, it's all salt's fault. You know, it's hard to really figure out what exactly is the epicenter for the obesity crisis, but um, conventional wisdom would say it's because we have a lack of willpower. It's our fault. You know, well, it's everybody's fault. It's all of those faults. But as it turns out, these foods have been so engineered that it overwhelms the best intention of a dieter, as evidenced by one in six people can't keep, they can't maintain their weight loss. They just can't. Well, obviously, the health implications for this is shocking. 
not only the crisis in health, but the quality of life, and it's happening in childhood. Moss opens the book with a prologue, with a meeting that happened in Minneapolis in 1999. It was convened by a fellow named James Benke. Benke was the chief technical officer for Pillsbury, and he had been on a committee. They'd been tracking, you know, obesity. It's 99, so in 99, here we are. We're up to 20% overweight in the and obese in the country. So yeah, that's where we were in 99. And um, he's tracking it, and he, he's alarmed. And his fellow chief technical officers are alarmed in the other companies, and he does really the most unprecedented thing. He gets 11 CEOs together in the same room. And these are the guys, the top dogs at Nestle, Kraft, General Mills, Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, and Mars. And, um, you know, this is a pretty sensitive little thing to get these guys together. Between them, they controlled 700,000 employees and $280 billion in annual sales. Powerful group of folks. He also had the suppliers to the industry, Cargill and Tate and Lyle. Um, and they sat down and presented the problems of obesity. They talked about in excruciating detail the rising rates of diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. There were, at this point, a lot of outside groups pointing their fingers directly at the food industry to the ubiquitous supply of inexpensive, good-tasting, supersized, energy-dense, and well-marketed food. So, you know, this group wanted to deal with it, and um, they came together and they talked about what they could do. They were also, let's be honest a little concerned about the tobacco industry's fate a few years prior in the class action lawsuits. So there was lots of reasons to deal with this issue, and they were the ones who could do it. But what they really wanted was to get together in all of the industry pull back on sugar, salt, and fat in the foods. Because if one did it, they're losing market share, Wall Street screams. But if all of them did it, then everybody's in the same boat. They can do it together. That's what they wanted. They also wanted to uh, work on ag campaigns about uh, exercise and those kinds of things. So far, so good. I am personally very impressed with the folks that pulled this meeting together. But look at 2010. Obviously, it didn't work. We just got fatter. What happened was the CEO of General Mills, a guy named Steve Sanger, he stood up and he said, consumers are fickle. They want what tastes good. Don't talk to me about nutrition. Talk to me about taste. General Mills will not pull back. End of meeting. End of initiative. They didn't even get their penance for the PSA campaign. So taste, convenience, and cost are the three tenets that drive the food industry, and you can't mess with those. You just simply can't mess with those. Kraft had a really... Strong effort in this area a few years later. They really dug in and said, we're going to do it. We're going it on our own. They were the one company that tried to do it. Hershey's seized the day. Their stock went down. Wall Street screamed, more sugar than ever in craft products and salt and fat. At the end of the day, these guys are in the business of selling food and making money. You know, it's, it's a conundrum, but we have problems. Okay, let's talk about sugar. He divides the book into three big sections. One is sugar, 
One is fat and one is salt. And I don't think I'm going to get to salt today, but we may try it. Okay, you've ordered unsweet iced tea at the restaurant. How many packs of sweetener do you put in it? One. The average American today consumes 22 teaspoons of sugar. That's 70 pounds a year, and that's double what we consumed in 1970s. Also today, 26 million of us have type 2 diabetes. 26 million. So what is it about sugar particularly? First of all, y'all remember the tongue map, the taste map on your tongue, the bitter up here, the salt up here, bitter somewhere, blah, blah, blah. It's wrong. Absolutely wrong. We are so hardwired to like sugar. It is in our DNA, and it was a very effective uh, mechanism for years when your food supply wasn't what it is today. Your brain really lights up. The reward center of your brain, if you even think about ice cream sundae, <laughs> the brain goes blah, 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 in the reward center. It is, it is our survival mechanism, but that was way before we had the processed food industry when it was important. Actually, we have um, sugar sensors all the way down our esophagus, all the way through our tongue, all the way down our esophagus. We want our sugar. So there was a graduate student. He was studying experimental psychology, and his name was Anthony Sclafini. And this was in the late 60s. He's sitting in his lab. I don't know what his experiment is. I guess he's bored. He's waiting for the... He starts throwing Fruit Loops into the lab rats. <laughs> he throws a Fruit Loop in, and the lab rats like it. And so he throws another one, and he's like... If anybody knows rats, and i got to say I'm not a big... I don't have a great deal of knowledge about rats, but it makes sense to me that rats do not like open spaces. No way, no how. They don't want to be out in the open. They stick to the corners. So he'd throw the Fruit Loop in the middle of the open space, and they're like, go for it. Damn the consequences. They want their Fruit Loops. And he was like, huh. He just kind of stored that away. A few years later, he's, he's an associate professor somewhere, and he's doing an experiment, and um, he's got fattened up his rats. I don't know what the experiment was about, but he couldn't get his rats fat for anything. He'd feed them dog food, nothing, corn, nothing. They, their energy balance, their mechanisms that kept their calories in, calories out worked. They, they did not get fat. Anyway, then he went, oh, Fruit Loops. They like Fruit Loops. So he starts feeding them Fruit Loops. Guess what happens? They ate so much over the next few weeks that they became obese. And he wrote it up in 1976, and it was the first evidence of food cravings where sugar is concerned. Up to that point, people hadn't really studied sugar in that way, but tons of research has been done on the subject since then. Scientists in Princeton found, actually, when they took their rats off of sugar, they had symptoms of withdrawal, which is one of the characteristics of addiction. Florida researchers conditioned rats, this is crazy, they conditioned rats to expect an electrical shock when they ate a piece of cheesecake. Guess what they did? They ate the cheesecake. <laughs> I would go through an electrical shock to get to the cheesecake factory. <laughs> Duh. Another study showed that soft drinks actually made the rats hungrier. It produced more sensation of hunger. How did all this impact the food industry? One guy, smart fella, really good-intentioned guy. His name was Harold Moskowitz. Uh, he was a Harvard Ph.D. 
studying experimental psychology, and he had a background in math. Little was known in the 60s about why people liked certain food. But he focused on creating a scientific method by which researchers could study taste. He really prided himself on the fact that he brought um, science to the field of the food industry. Have you all seen the stories on CBS, whatever, on the the meal replacement stuff that the soldiers eat in the field. Well, they were out in the field. I guess it was Vietnam. I'm not sure where, when it was. But apparently they didn't like their meal replacement things. And they weren't eating, and they were getting weak. And, you know, that may be the reason we didn't win Vietnam. But so he went to work on this subject. How do you get them to eat those things? By God, we've got some healthy soldiers now. I remember not too long ago watching 60 Minutes on the subject talking about how good those things were. The first thing he really got into, and he really did this through very disciplined scientific methodologies, but he discovered what they called the bliss point. You know, we like sugar, but in the case of sugar, there is a point at which too much sugar is too much, and um, that's the bliss point. So load it up, load it up, load it up, it's better, 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 boo, 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 So he found the bliss point, and the industry took to the bliss point. He became an industry star in the 80s when he applied the same rigorous research to save the coffee brand Maxwell House. Maxwell House was going down. Folgers was winning. And what he found were people kind of fell into three categories. They liked their milder coffee, their medium coffee, or their bold coffee. So he really was the father of the line extension. Malcolm Gladwell holds up Harold Moskowitz as his personal hero <laughs> because he did the same thing to Prego. You know, Prego was losing share, and he said, huh, and he, he used very rigorous science. He did all kinds of studies, and he found that some people liked chunky Prego, some people liked spicy tray. So there we are. And if, if you know anything about the food industry, and it doesn't take insider knowledge to know it's all about shelf space in the grocery store. Everything's tied to shelf space. in the, So line extension just gets you a whole lot more shelf space in the grocery store. And it turns out that sugar is cheaper than tomatoes. So there's real economic incentive to do all this. He studied the allure of food and what exactly makes cinnamon so alluring. And it turns out that hunger, hunger is a terrible driver of cravings. When you're hungry, you might eat the carrot. But taste, aroma, Appearance and texture really drive cravings. Well, that makes sense. The cola wars, of course, were covered in the book. How can you talk about sugar without talking about the cola wars? You know, they have done so much research on cola, it's ridiculous. Well, as it turns out, the advantage that Coke has over Pepsi is that you've got this burst of sugar, boop, 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 then it gets bland in a way that Pepsi doesn't. Pepsi is sweeter. So when they did the taste tests, the taste test said that Pepsi was better because you only sip one sip of it. But when you, do, when you drink the whole bottle, you prefer the Coke. So it has something they call, you know, like it, it becomes invisible. But that's why you keep drinking the Coke. Well, as the, the Cola Wars escalated, guess what else escalated? Everybody was drinking cola at the time. So the amount of cola that we were all consuming in soft drinks just went crazy in the 80s. 
And you can thank Michael Jackson if you want, but we loved it. The other thing that the fabulous food industry found out is they could add a teaspoon of fruit juice to a product and say it has real juice. And it would be consumed because, you know, that gave you permission to drink it and call it healthy. Obviously, a teaspoon of juice isn't going to do anything for you. There is so much research that goes into food development. I, I can't even begin to cover it. Every little aspect of the food from a scientific point of view and then from the marketing point of view is covered. Harold Moskowitz, I'm sure, was a very good guy. He was a very smart guy. But when they discovered the power of research, the food industry took to it, and they, they measure everything. They manipulate everything, and it is, it is really interesting. Nestle is the world's biggest food producer now, and um, their research arm has a staff of 700 people, including 350 scientists, and um, they have 80 patents, 300 collaborative peer-reviewed papers. I mean, they are really going, going after the research in a really big way. And the author thought that if anybody could deal with the food crisis, on, um, it would be Nestle. But um, in the end, he wasn't very hopeful about Nestle at all. Obviously, the rise of processed food is because of a lot of other social issues. You know, convenience is a huge portion. The amount of time the food has to stay on the shelf is a huge issue as well. All of that's pretty obvious. So let's move on to fat. And I'm going to actually let our author tell you about the fat. If sugar is the methamphetamine of food with its high-speed blunt assault on our brains, then fat is the opiate, a smooth operator whose effects are less obvious but no less powerful. Okay, well, anyway, we eat a lot of cheese. The reason we eat a lot of cheese, I think, is just shocking. The dairy cows up in Wisconsin, you know, they were doing their job. They were um, (laughs) producing milk. And I guess when you're a cow in Wisconsin, you're cold and you don't produce as much milk as you would to say you lived in California. So the dairy industry shifted over to California, and those folks, they, they milked those cows, and they added hormones and everything else. So we have a whole lot more milk going on, and this is in the 70s when the low-fat craze is happening. At the same time, people switch from whole milk to skim milk. And there's a whole lot more, believe it or not, skim milk being consumed than whole milk. Well, a cow delivers whole milk, and the way you make skim milk is you take the milk fat off the whole milk, and you put it over there, and then you've got the skim milk. They had so much milk fat that they turned into cheese, and they stored, I kid you not, <laughs> only in America, they stored all this cheese in a mine in Kansas underground. <laughs> Well, apparently, it was bursting out at the seams, and they were like, Washington, help us. So Washington's buying and paying for all this cheese, and it's just sitting there. Well, it's processed cheese, so it can last forever. (laughs) So they start selling it to guess who? School children. In 83, Reagan came in, and um, his secretary of whatever looked at it. He says, oh, my dear God, why are we spending $4 billion worth of cheese and it's sitting under the ground? So he put a stop to it. He says, 
we're not going to do this anymore. And the food industry goes, oh, my. Well, ideally, if the U.S. government is going to say we're not going to buy all this cheese, then there would be an incentive to produce less, right, you'd think? Didn't happen. U.S. government didn't do anything to weld it back. Production's still going wild. And and we're still in a low-fat craze. We're still, like, everything's low-fat. If you're going to the grocery store, you're going to buy the low-fat item on the shelf. So they had to do something with all this cheese. And cheese up to this point was pretty much a slice on your sandwich or a um, hors d'oeuvre. We've managed to triple our cheese consumption. How do you think you triple your cheese consumption when there's already or a social motivation not to eat fat? How do you triple it? You turn it into an ingredient. It is now invisible. It is now inside every packaged food on the pasta and shells aisle in the supermarket. It's an ingredient. And you can't see it. And when you can't see it, there is so much research on hidden fats. And when you can't see it, you, you don't really realize you're eating it. And we've tripled our cheese consumption. To me, that's fascinating. And, and the, the research behind it, they explored if you could see your fat, like you had a slice of cheese and there's, I mean, a slice of pizza, and there's pools of grease on it, and then there's a slice of pizza, and it's kind of not. It's cheesy, but it's kind of, you know, it doesn't, it's hidden. Um, you will eat 10% more if you can't see the fat, even though it's just as fat. You'll eat 10% more. Well, it doesn't take much to be overweight. In fact, there's estimates it's only 100 calories a day. Every time the industry has tried to cut back, Wall Street screams. They have done, they've made some really valiant efforts to do it. They really have. And their um, recipes are just not good, and people will not eat them. They're a victim of their own success, and we're right there with them. Um, There is some evidence where salt is concerned that you can get used to no salt. So that's not quite – salt's a whole different story. Really, since the whole foods movement is going on, and I've heard for a long time, shop the perimeter of the grocery store, do not – go into the center of the grocery store for anything. But it's really difficult with the amount of marketing that goes on. And I have really tried to buy cereal without sugar in it. It's oatmeal, baby, or shredded wheat. Like even uh, Special K and Cheerios have too much sugar in it. Anyway, I would highly recommend this book. There's a whole other chapter on salt Um, that you need to read, so I'm going to leave that for you to read. But, you know, salt's a little more dangerous because that's where people die. The rest of us are just feeling bad and, you know, kind of miserable. But the salt people die. So, And the amount of salt in our food is crazy. Anybody have any questions? I'll refer them to the nutritionists. (laughs) Just about um, three weeks ago, World Health Organization came out and stated that we should have no more than 50 grams of sugar. One 12-ounce Coke is 39 ounces of sugar, I mean 39 grams of of sugar. So people just don't have any clue. When we lived in Japan, we discovered that the sugar and the salt was extremely low. So I would highly recommend that people go down to the Coke Museum in Atlanta and try the sodas of other countries. They're interesting. most Americans will go... Yuck.
Another thing that, we've, that the government's done with cheese is commodity cheese, and they push that on Native Americans and um, poor people. The other r- remark I wanted to make is when we say Wall Street screamed, who is Wall Street? That's us. Yeah. Well, the government is us. Wall Street's us. So we th- I think starting to think about this in a different way may help change the culture in this country about food. And, and when the food is so... Uh, you know, addictive is a tough word, but it but it says you have for such strong cravings, and the research is really there that it the craving set in place by the food industry, the processed food industry, overwhelms willpower. I was hoping that you may have a minute or two to speak to uh, salt cravings and salt addictions. Oh, I think salt is interesting. You understand why we need fat and and sugar to survive back in the days when we didn't have ready food supplies. But it doesn't really make sense so much that you need salt. It's, I mean, you do need a little bit of salt. There are people who die from lack of salt, but it's, it's rare in the amount of salt you need. So they have done all kinds of research on how to lower the salt. They do all kinds of things like reformulate the granules and make them flat, make them different shapes, and try to, you know, give the bang for the buck but have a different formula so that you can have salt in it. By the way, none of this has to do with your table salt. You cannot salt your food enough to make a difference. It's all the sodium in the processed food. There was a lot on the salt issue, but it had a lot to do with the hypertension and the death rate and the the amount of research when they did lower the salt ratios, the um, death rate went down considerably. You know, um, it turns out addiction to salt, it turns out, can be readily reversed. All that is needed is to stop eating processed foods. So it, it doesn't have the same hook. You know, it takes a few days, but if you stay away from the Campbell soup, you know, or the macaroni and cheese or all that, you'll be fine. What is the logic behind changing the food label on packaging? which was recently done, and it'll all go into effect sometime this year, I think. Can anybody from the health department talk about that? Um, There's still back and forth, so we're hoping, I guess, that it gets debuted, the new Nutrition Facts label, um, two years from now, I think is what um, they've been quoted. But basically highlighting, and there's been a couple of different versions that have been proposed as well, So, um, but highlighting calories, so making calories on the label, Um, front and center and bigger, like the font size bigger, and then um, also breaking down um, and putting the daily value percentages front and center so they know, you know, this is how much fat, this grams of fat this product provides, and this is your percent daily value that it provides. So just kind of making those key factors more eye-catching and eye-popping so the consumer has easier access to those. And and I think they made it a lot more realistic. So you get a pouch of um, potato chips, and it'll say two servings. So when you read, oh, it only has 75 calories, well, in fact, it has 150 or you know, because you do eat the whole bag. Boy, it works at Waffle House. I thought I was being relatively healthy at Waffle House. <laughs> but they started putting calories. I was ordering an omelet thinking I was being good. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> it's like 780 calories in an omelet at Waffle House. I'm like, you know, an egg has 70, 80 calories, but two eggs in an omelet. You know, it's... Little cheese, that's got to be a, you know, 
300 calorie omelet. <laughs> and of course, the hidden sodium. Um, the other thing I understand with the new label also, which I think is really important, is separating out the sugars, whether it's a processed sugar or natural sugar, you know, coming from the from the fruits. And I think that's going to be real beneficial. He does talk about run. fructose, glucose, is it as bad as fructose? Yeah. But it's cheaper, so it's a lot easier to add into the food. And, um, you know, and that became an additive based on economics as much as anything. It's cheaper because the government subsidizes corn and soybean. And so the government... Is I mean, it's not deliberate, I guess, but they are subsidizing this unhealthy food. And they don't subsidize healthy produce, at least not to the same degree. If they did, it would even out the costs more. And then people who are buying food based on price, there wouldn't be that incentive to buy that cheap, unhealthy food. Absolutely. The the government, I think, you know, the lobby of the food industry, the cattle industry, the dairy industry, it's big. And some of these guys, you know, they're CEOs of big companies. They don't want regulation, but they're beginning to realize that if the government doesn't regulate the food industry, they're not going to do it. Because if I'm Nabisco and, you know, Hershey's is just in the cookie market, I'm not about to come out of my sugar mode, you know. You have to do it across the board. Somebody wanted to put a tax on sugary drinks mm-hmm. like like sodas and colas. The industry screamed bloody murder, but so they're willing to take the sub, the the government subsidization on one end for the raw ingredients, but then when it came to taxing on the other end, of course they screamed and said how unfair that was and whatnot. When I was younger. Parents were more involved in trying to eat healthy, had more fruits and nuts and things like that in our home. And as people have gotten busier and, you know, the, the mentality has left, the, the home when it came to um, laying out food choices and all, we have relied on the school systems to teach this. The school systems are subsidized by Nabisco and Nestle and all of that. Government cheese. Exactly. So, again, you're dealing with, you know, where's, where's it coming from? I think it's extremely important that we try to get back and educate people in the foundation of, of what they're doing when, they, when it comes to their food. That's right, and this book does talk about um, the nature of the way we eat has changed so significantly. Very few families, I think, I don't know what the stats are, y'all may know, that sit down to the table and eat dinner. They, um, You eat on the run, you eat all day long, you grab something out of your purse and keep going. Very few families sit down to dinner anymore. So, I would recommend the book. And he's a really good writer. It's really a good read and interesting read. And like I said, it's kind of fun to trip down nostalgia through our popular brands. But thank you all. Hello, friends. We depart from the typical here to give you another treat, an intimate interview with the book reviewer, revealing her very personal response to the information she presented a year ago when this event was recorded. 
right. Okay. Mary Palm, it has been a full year since you spoke on the book Salt, Sugar, Fat. And I wanted to come back and ask how that book impacted you. Actually, that book impacted me a lot for a lot of reasons. Um, This is a Mm -hmm. lifelong struggle for me. I'm not sure how much the um, processed foods impacted me because my mother was a very wholesome cook. We sat around the dinner table every night and ate a regular meal. We didn't have junk food. So I have a slightly different story. I think my biology was just off from the beginning. As I was doing research for that book talk, I looked into the rates of long-term weight loss management or maintenance, being able to maintain your weight over a long time, And the statistics were shocking, really. As I understand it, the ability to lose weight is doable, but the ability to keep it off is almost impossible. One to five percent can keep their weight off through diet and exercise alone. That means it's not about discipline. It's not about knowledge of food, because God knows I know what we're supposed to eat. I was sent off to Weight Watchers camp in fourth grade, again in sixth grade. I've been doing this battle. I know how you're supposed to eat, but my body doesn't want me to stay there. I have a set point that's just higher than normal. So I started exploring the options out there, and one of my close friends advised me to consider weight loss surgery. And immediately I said, no way. You know, if I can't manage to lose weight and keep it off through diet and exercise, how am I going to do it through surgery? That's just, you know, it's just a gimmick. And the more I looked into it, it's not just a gimmick. It deals with gut bacteria. It deals with a whole area of study that we're just beginning to understand, which is your gut flora. And there is something about some of the weight loss surgeries, not all of them, that really address your metabolism in a way that diet and exercise just can't. So I did it. Mm -hmm. Two months ago, I bit the bullet and I had a gastric sleevectomy. And I've lost 34 pounds. I don't know if I'll be able to keep it all off. My goal is to eventually lose 100 pounds. And, you know, losing weight isn't the hard part. It's the keeping it off part. But Science has told us that 85% of the people who have surgery, particularly the sleevectomy, are successful. That doesn't mean they're successful in staying skinny, and that's not really the goal, but they're successful in getting out of obesity. Mm -hmm. So I will probably lose 100 pounds, and if I'm average, then I'll probably gain about 20 pounds back and land, you know, a little overweight, but that's okay. 85% of the folks who have had this surgery have been successful in in losing weight and staying out of obesity. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. (laughs) Were some of your goals related to just overall health? Absolutely related to overall health. You know, certainly looks is, is, is a huge bonus, but that's not the impact. My, um, I I would like to just mention to those listeners that Perhaps haven't seen you that you're gorgeous. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. But no, my quality of life had diminished. I was very, very active. Even though I've been overweight my whole life, I've been athletic. I've always done endurance-type sports from um, rowing and bike riding to hiking. And I noticed that I wasn't doing those things anymore. I'm over 50 now, and I've gotten a lot more sedentary. And that's not me. I'm a big exerciser. I go to the gym every morning, and I was not, I was having to force myself to go to the gym 
and often not successfully. <laughs> so my overall quality of life was diminishing considerably. And my mother has struggled with weight, and there is a genetic component to it. And um, I watch her mobility issues. And, you know, if this surgery had been available to her years before, her quality of life would have been much improved. But it wasn't available to her. She's in her late 70s now, and you know, it's probably not wise for her to undertake this kind of surgery. But I could see following in her footsteps, and I didn't want to do that. And, you know, my mother has a great quality of life, but she's she's much more mental than I am. I'm much more physical, and I didn't want to give that up. I'm way too young to dread hiking to the top of Mount Lecomte, which I'm going to do this summer. Before the surgery, I said, oh, Mary Palm, don't do it. I was so scared for you. You know, surgery is such a huge step, and... You know, I love you as you are, and, you know, I, I know that you do want to be more active, but, you know, I was just thinking, oh, surgery, what what could that mean? What what are the risks? And, you know, I, I thought you showed tremendous courage taking that on. What, what was that journey like, and was I your only friend who said, oh? No, you were not my only friend who said, don't do it. I've had several friends say that. And I think, you know, there is a risk to surgery. In fact, uh, I had a friend come up to me yesterday who said that her cousin had the same surgery in Denver and died. So it is something you don't take lightly. And that's true of any surgery. I don't think it's particularly this one. You know, any time you're opened up, you are at high risk of all kinds of things. Um, The other thing is true of... um, particularly the weight loss surgeries, is, you know, you're subjecting yourself to a total different pattern of eating and your relationship with food. And if you are emotionally attached to food, it's going to be a really tough battle. I have been working with a therapist, and she promised me right off the bat that I didn't have an addictive personality, and that was fairly emotionally grounded. <laughs> but she she said I was a very good candidate because, in her estimation, it is a biological issue I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. So the risks are real. Throwing up after surgery is pretty common. I've had a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. If you eat one bite too much, you'll have a little bit of um, throw up. And that sounds awful, but it's not as awful as it sounds. It's not like you're sick and you have it's a stomach communication yeah. your Yeah, your stomach <laughs> is telling you, back off. Right. So, yeah, there is there are things that you have to deal with, and but it's your body telling you what to do and how to do it. Have you noticed a difference in cravings? I have absolutely noticed. I have very little appetite, and it's... I mean, when I'm hungry, like if I've gone several hours without either eating or drinking something, my body will say it's time to eat, and I'll eat two or three tablespoons of food, and I am fine. In fact, as you know, I've been in social situations where I'll go out and, you know, everybody's eating dinner or drinking, and Mm -hmm. I'm perfectly happy to sit there and be part of the event, and it does not bother me one bit, and that is a joy. Mm -hmm. To be released from the power of food is an absolute joy. Related to the book that you spoke about at Book Sandwiched In, is there any processed food that you really want to get back to? Oh, Lordy. 
that book was so interesting to me because it so clearly matched the pattern of obesity. I wasn't raised on processed foods. I mean, you know, some, but not the level that happened in the 80s. The bliss points and the maximized craving factors that they... And I came along before that stuff, and I'm grateful for that because I can't even imagine. I never ate a bunch of the packaged pasta, cheese pasta dishes. So I haven't been too attached to that kind of thing. And I really wasn't a big fast food person. So no, and in fact, I like whole foods. I like vegetables. But there is a point at which you are attracted to the bad foods. And if you can break that craving and start focusing on the foods that are really good and wholesome, Mm -hmm. they taste great. Mm -hmm. The trick is to stay there because once you wander back into the processed foods for too long, it'll kick off all those mechanisms. So you do have to be vigilant. This is not a quick fix. It's very, very hard, Mm -hmm. and it's lifelong. It isn't magic. You do the work to lose the weight, and your stomach is smaller, and your hormones have changed but they can change back. Mm -hmm. So it's not something to do lightly because it isn't necessarily going to fix you. You have to stay in the game. You have to stay there with discipline and willpower that you're now able to do. Before the surgery, I wasn't able to use my own discipline and my own willpower, which I have plenty of, but my body really fought it. My body was stronger than my discipline. And I think once you've had the surgery, you will always have to be disciplined. But it's more possible. Well, Mary Palm, thank you so much for speaking with me. This is Melissa Bredeman, the editor of the Book Sandwich Den podcast. Thank, thank you. This has been fun. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwich Den, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.